hello team hello mops and mo's team uh you have alex and myself tonight this is drew uh no guests just the two of us nice intimate discussion just an intimate fireside chat about how to get a job in tactical strength and conditioning we've got as we normally do a rough framework of some things we want to touch on a lot of this coming from the instagram uh questions a lot of this coming from just general conversations we've had over the years with folks in different branches doing different things as i mentioned we will touch predominantly on strength and conditioning but that's not to say that we won't make room for athletic training or any of the other embedded services that are out there a theme here is going to be and this is driven specifically by the nature of the messages i've received uh, both on instagram on the mops and most platform but also on linkedin uh, there seems to be a pretty significant population of service members who are interested in working in the human performance space after they separate from the military, especially now that they see human performance in their footprint and they can like start to understand what it is. They want to be a part of it. They're excited about it. And so a lot of what this is going to be is like talking about what that pathway looks like, how to set yourself up for that while you're still in uniform, or maybe you're not in the military and want to come work with the military, what that might look like. Um, and, and before we start, I do want to make a disclaimer that, uh, I have never actually gotten a job as a strength and conditioning coach. <laughs> Drew will probably take the lead on a lot of that stuff. I run my mouth a lot. That does not mean that I am a coach and I have addressed this numerous times, but it's important to realize I've gotten a job in administrative roles and that's cool and super fun. And everybody wants to do that. Right. I think it's telling though that you you have never been a strength coach that you have your CSCS yet you've built a pretty big Instagram following that looks for strength conditioning advice which probably speaks to our industry in general. The most fascinating messages I get are when it's like from coaches saying they appreciate something I've posted or like asking me clarification on something that's like very much coaching and that's always fun. I I've done a little bit of coaching like indirectly, right? Like I have I have coached a bit, some group, some individual, but I've never like paid my bills by way of full-time coaching. And I have. So here we go. All right, sweet. So where what's the first topic we have to crack open to explain this? Contracting versus GS is the first thing that I have. Well, hold on. Contracting versus GS versus the third option that does exist. There are uniformed military roles in the human performance space, and we can talk a little bit about the pathways to those. Um, I will I will probably in here drop a pitch that's going to sound like an advertisement for the Army Graduate Program in Nutrition. Nick Berenger, if you're listening, I can send you my information so you guys can pay your sponsorship dues. Shout out, Nick. Um. Okay, deal. So I guess in terms of um, just kind of getting into coaching, the, the the biggest funnel in my head, and I could be wrong here, but just from my own experience, the biggest funnel by far is contracting. So I think we touched on this in one of our FAQ episodes a while back, but essentially, yeah, contracting versus GS, and I'll let you throw in the active duty piece. Basically what you're looking at is you, if you're a contractor, you work for a company that is being contracted Hence the, hence the term, uh, by the government to provide a service the same way that the government pays for a company to um, landscape 
at their installation. And that's not to say that strength and conditioning coaches are equivalent to lawnmowers. Um, but as a contractor, you work for company XYZ and that company has, has bid on a government contract and said, we can provide this service uh, at this dollar value. And the government has said, okay, and handshake deal, boom. Now they are fielding resumes to fill those positions that they've told the government they can fill. So that is, I mean, I wouldn't even hazard to throw a percentage on it, but that is the largest majority of positions by far, though that might change in the next few years. Who's to say? Anything to add on that one on contracting? The the one I'll add, I, we have a couple of notes that we'll get into on contracting here as we go down it, but one we didn't discuss before hit and record that I want to bring up briefly is the importance of understanding whether it's a, a personal services or a non-personal services contract, because that does change the nature of it. Um, we won't we won't dive into it here because that gets into like legalese and stuff. Um, but the bottom line is if you're if you're on a personal services contract, there's going to be more of a employer employee relationship between the contractor and the government, not just the contracting company. In a non personal services contract, it's very much just you to the company, and then that company will deal with the government things change a little bit in a personal services contract. So I, I think a couple of take-home points for, for contracting and looking at work as a contractor. Number one, it's not better, worse, or different. I think when I first started, I, I started my first contract gig, I think when I was 23 or 24. Um, and you're told a lot of things, you know, you're called like a dirty contractor and whatever. Um, but, and you may actually know this better than I do, a large chunk of the DOD is based off of contract work. Like it's a massive amount of work that's being provided. So it's an important piece of the puzzle. And although you do technically work for a different company, depending on how that company manages its people, you you show up every day to work at the installation. So like when I was a contracted strength and conditioning coach, you know, I won't, I won't name the company that I worked for, but for all intents and purposes, I worked for the squadron that I showed up to work at every day. Um, you know, I communicated with the company somewhat regularly. They, they signed my paychecks and they dealt with my leave, but I was, I was enmeshed in the daily rhythm of the squadron. Um, that's going to be different for different locations. Um, as these contracts get bigger and bigger, I think you do see a lot more, um, oversight and management probably, probably for the better. Um, but you do still, as a contractor, you are still part of the team within which you work, especially from a strength and conditioning standpoint. So you may from time to time hear people, you know, oh, like, you you know, you don't work for whatever. But like, if you're doing your job well, that that barrier or that line shouldn't even really exist. Um, the other thing that you will hear is that you can be fired at any point, um, which is is technically true, but it's not necessarily that black and white. What that effectively means is that as these contracts run their course and as you you approach these periods of performance, the government reassesses what, how the company is doing, do they want to continue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So every year, give or take, you usually go through this pretty scary period of wondering if you're going to have a job and then inevitably things work out um, and you stay employed. If you do, if that company does lose the contract though, in some cases, and I don't want to misspeak here, but in my experience, 
as the existing employee, you do have first right of refusal, which basically means that because you are in place, if a new company wins that contract, they are obligated to offer you that position. It may be that your salary decreases. It may be that you have to negotiate some stuff, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if company XYZ loses out on that contract and then company ABC takes over, coach so-and-so is just out the door. Anything to add on that? Uh, I, I pulled up a couple of things to answer your question about like how much of the DOD is contractors. Um, it's it's tough to pin down a really specific number, but to like give you a sense of the scope, the DOD contracts with over 50,000 companies in terms of contracts where the contract is for a person to provide work for the DOD, we're talking a little over half a million full-time equivalent roles, FTEs. So like six, 700,000 people as of a few years ago, it's probably more now, but that number does not account for all the people who work on contracts where it's a product that's provided, not like a person in person delivering it. Um, so like rough numbers, we're talking like several million. It's a lot of people like in the neighborhood of 7 million people. Yeah. It's a lot of people. And I mean, there's not really a take-home point there just to say that, again, it's it's a it's a huge piece of what makes the military tick. So not something that everybody is going to chew on, but I know for me, especially starting off very young, there was a little bit of a question of like, where do I fit in to the, to the bigger puzzle? I guess one other thing to mention on that, and this may take us in a slightly different direction about, well, I'll hold off on that for now, just in terms of different contract awards and subcontracts and things like that. Touching on GS real quickly. So as a contractor, we mentioned you work for a company that is doing providing service for the government. As a GS, as a government civilian um, or general schedule, so GS stands for, you work directly for the government. So the process is a little bit different. The hiring process is a little bit more intensive. It takes a little bit longer, but you'll hear this all the time. Like the benefits are really good. You know, after, after your whatever prohibition period is it pro prohibition, probation <laughs> after your probation period is over whether that's a year two years um you know you'll hear that it's very hard to get fired and that is true so as a gs employee again you work directly for you know in my case the department of the army department of defense whatever so it's it's similar but it is different there are you know rank equivalencies gs 11 12 13 kind of stacks up with you know, whatever, lieutenant, captain, major. So you can you can navigate the traditional military hierarchy a little bit differently than if you're a contractor, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Um, and then again, depending on where you're where you're sitting, what you're doing, who you're working with, it it just looks and feels a little bit different. And I've I've worn both of those hats. I don't necessarily prefer one over the other, uh, but there are definitely benefits to both. If there's anything you want to add to that. A couple small ones. One, like GS is used as a blanket term to describe federal civilians. Not all federal civilians fall under general schedule. There are other pay structures and pay bans and things like that. But usually if you're looking at one that's different, it's for a particular reason. And since everybody's familiar with GS, it will probably have some kind of like conversion chart so you can understand it compared to GS. And then... One I was going to throw out in terms of like what life is like as a government civilian, and this is coming from my perspective as somebody who was active duty for a while and then jumped over to being 
a government civilian. It's an interesting world. Uh, I feel like sometimes that it's not that different from being in uniform. You just work much more, much easier hours. Mm -hmm. If you're in uniform, they have much less control over your life outside of the specific hours you work. Um, Mm -hmm. You're still pretty deep in like the beast in terms of you're going to still use all the same jargon and all the same structures and things like that. Um, But one quick shout out though, if you're, I don't know how many like national guard reserve people we have here, but the, the federal civilian experience is very amenable to also serving in the reserves because there's a lot of people who do that. Alex is doing that. I am doing it. And they're like, you're entitled to a whole bunch of military leave. Like you're entitled to enough military leave to accomplish your annual battle assembly requirements and things like that. Um, it's just, it's easy. A lot of, a lot of the same requirements you have, like administrative requirements are the same for both jobs. So you can do two things at once there. There's it's, it's nice for that if you're a reserve service member. So there's, there, it could be a good way to like continue your service and be involved in something like human performance. And I guess the one thing I'll add to the GS piece, um, without going too off the rails, I, I would direct people towards USA Jobs. One because usajobs.com. One because that's where the positions are posted. But two, you'll quickly find that just because a position is listed there does not mean that you are eligible. Um, there's a whole heap of you know veteran preference, spouse preference, um, transitional. Like there's there's all kinds of categories and subcategories regarding who is eligible for what positions. Um, and that is wholly dependent upon the organization that's hiring that position. So we'll get into some of the requirements for your, your kind of basic strength and conditioning coach contracted employee in a little bit. And I would think that that is a much, that probably makes much more sense to your average, your average Joe versus the GS system. So without turning this into an episode entirely on general schedule, I would push folks in that direction to learn more because there is quite a lot. Yeah. I'll, I know we're going to like come back and talk about what makes you competitive for some of these positions. So like you said, we're not going to make this a whole episode about like GS and federal hiring and stuff, but I will knock out a couple that I tell people all the time. that seems to be helpful for them. One, if you're pursuing a federal civilian job, realize that a federal resume is nothing like a civilian resume. Mm -hmm. Um, All the things you've heard about, like keeping it short and concise, forget all that, throw it out the window. Yep. Um, your federal resume is going to be extremely long and it has to hit all the keywords they're looking for. The best way to find the keywords that they're looking for are to go through the job listing and ideally not just the job listing, but also the questionnaire that is part of the job application. Um, and because of how annoying and complex that is, I often encourage people to seek out, like there's various services, nonprofit, certainly if you're a veteran, they can like help you with federal resumes, but even more simply, even before you're ready to start applying for anything in particular, just practice applying to some jobs on there to just to see if you get through the automated filter. And that makes sure you have all, like there's a bunch of documents that are going to be required if you're selecting certain things to prove that you are eligible for them. Just making sure you have all your ducks in a row in terms of that stuff is one of the most important things to like even being up for consideration for some of those jobs. Yeah. And that makes me want to add one more point to this because I'm in a place now where I receive some of those resumes. And I will tell you that while there is a structure to the federal resume that you should definitely follow, there is also room to differentiate yourself. And when it arrives at, and again, I think I mentioned this in in that earlier episode, but when it arrives at somebody's desk, like desk, like mine, 
you would be, I was actually shocked at how important that was and how quickly that made people stand out versus just fade into the masses. Because I get a single PDF document that has just a ton of resumes on it. And so really what I'm, what I'm getting at with that is stick to what they require from a federal resume standpoint, but find ways in which you can make it your own and stand out amongst the stack of resumes that's on the hiring manager's desk. Because Alex mentioned the getting through the automated computer system, that's step one. Then that stuff gets compiled and sent to a human being. And that's where you can kind of play up the human aspect of it to secure the interview and and hopefully ultimately get the job. And that reminds me of a point that's worth making before I forget it. Whether you're talking about contracting civilian or military, one thing that has stood out to me as somebody who transitioned from like the big army into this relatively small human performance space is just that how small this world is. It seems big. There's a lot of stuff going on, but really, really quickly, you'll realize that like the names you start hearing are the same ones. The community is small enough that people know people and your reputation is going to matter in a really big way. Cause even if you're applying for something where nobody there knows you, they're going to fire off a couple messages to like, like based on your resume, they're going to know where you worked before and they're going to fire off a couple notes to see if anybody's heard of you. And that is inevitably part of the process in every human performance role I have seen is like relationships are going to matter and your reputation is going to be a big deal. Yeah. And there's probably some stuff we can add to that when we touch on contract hiring too, because yeah. in, in that example, it does help to know people. But I'm a jerk and I still got hired. So it's it's possible. For it's true. If Alex can do it, anybody can do it. Um, do you want to touch on the active duty piece? Yeah, I think it's worth doing. Um, so, I promise we're going to get into like job requirements here in a little bit. Yeah. Well, one day because um, <laughs> it matters. But so I don't know as much about the enlisted tracks. Each of the officer specialties that are involved in a direct way in human performance have an accompanying technician role for enlisted service members. Um, that can be a great way to like get your foot into the space and start collecting some certifications and start getting some experience in like the, the medical ish performance ish world. And I've seen some of those guys go on to do great things um, or go on to commission or go on to like be a civilian in that role. Uh, so there's certainly opportunities there. I'm just not terribly experienced in knowing about it. I know those MOSs are relatively small um, compared to where I came from in like a pretty big field. So the way that careers are managed there is a little bit more personal, um, which has some advantages, especially if you're trying to like make a big difference and really care about what you do. But what I do know a little bit more about are the the various officer roles. And specifically here, I'm talking about uh, occupational therapist, physical therapist, and dietitian, all of which the army has its own program to like get people the academic credentials required and then commission them. Uh, I think you actually commission before you go. It's a little bit strange, but that we, we have our own, those are all through Baylor, but you don't have to go through the Baylor program to do it. If you are, if you already have the qualifications or if you want to go to a civilian school and like live that life and then come work for the army in uniform, you can absolutely do it that way. Um, whether it's through like OCS or direct commission, that is certainly a possibility as well, but there's, there's some really cool opportunities. And I said, I was going I dropped the like borderline advertisement for the nutrition program, but something I keep hearing when the dietitians around me are talking about it is they've got good data on what dietitians are paid across the country. And by the time you're like a junior captain dietitian, which happens fairly quickly, we're talking like 
three years into your career, you're in the 90th percentile of earnings for dietitians across the country. And it, it continues going up from there. And there's allowances for various things you can do and retention bonuses and tons of ways that you can make the army like one of the most lucrative ways to be a, a dietitian that there is. And I think it's it's probably fairly similar in PT and OT as well. I just don't know the numbers as, as clearly as I do for RD. Yeah, I think that's one of the big shifts we're going to see in the next couple of years is a is a more opportunity for active duty folks to to be involved in humor performance versus what it is now and especially has been over the last couple of years where it's like a cool assignment that you might land but then inevitably you have to get back into the grind of working in a clinic or whatever because you have to be promotable. So that'll be that'll be interesting to see play out. Yep. All right, let's talk about how to become a strength coach and then we will basically the way the way it makes sense to me is like one how to become a strength coach and then two what to look for to get specifically into tactical and drew will probably talk some of the like specific technical stuff for strength coaching broadly and i might be like chiming in to talk about avenues to do that for people who are like currently in the service and looking at transitioning into a role like this so the first thing you're going to need like unquestionably is a cscs from the NSCA, like that's your starting point. So that's a certified strength and conditioning specialist certification from the national strength and conditioning association. So I have their page pulled up right in front of me and I will just quickly go over the two requirements that you have to have in order to sit for the test. One of them is a bachelor's degree at a minimum, or you can be enrolled as a college senior at one of their accredited institutions. One of the caveats to this is that you can also have a terminal degree in physical therapy or chiropractic medicine for some reason. And then the second piece of this is that you have to have a current CPR AED certification. So again, this is like a, this is a 10,000 foot view. I would, I would drive folks to that website because each one of these requirements has links associated with it. That'll dive into the handbook and get into the details. You know, is your school accredited or not? Um, is it, what, what type of CPR do you need? Um, but that is the minimum requirement to sit for the exam. So legitimately any, just about, I mean, I, I have not found a single job posting that does not require the CSCS. You know, I've got mine, Alex has his. I have talked to folks that have asked if that's something that they can get after they're hired. I will tell you point blank, like they won't hire you until you have it. So the CSCS is the first place that you should look. Quick asterisk on the CSCS to make sure people note it. And there's probably language about this on the website. I just don't have it in front of me right now. But the the most recent statement I saw said that as of 2030, your bachelor's degree would have to be in a field like relevant to human performance, strength and conditioning, physiology, that kind of stuff. As of now, and for at least the next seven or so years, it does not have to be. Your degree can be in whatever you want. That said, if, if your degree is not in one of the approved fields that the restriction will apply to starting in 2030, you're just going to have to do a little bit of work on your own in terms of shoring up your knowledge on anatomy, physiology, bioenergetics kind of stuff that those guys might have gotten in the classroom. I kind of hate that in SCA. And that's me saying that because I have a bachelor's degree in business. And I have a bachelor's degree in international relations. And frankly, I'm, I'm obviously not a spokesperson for the NSCA. Neither of us are. 
but guys, if you're listening, that's going to really choke down your <laughs> revenue in terms of like eligible people to pay you money to take your test and then pay you more money to recertify every three years. I'm not, I'm not fully understanding. I'm not trying to tell you how I, to do your job, but <laughs> well, so my thing is this, right? Like I get it. And I think that was actually an old requirement that they're bringing back that you have to have your, your bachelor's and, you know, exercise science or whatever. And that's like, okay, that makes sense. Cool. However, I, at least one of the things that I have told folks who have asked me how to get into these roles, like study something that's not exercise science, like minor in exercise science. Cool. So you can speak the language, like know the difference between a quad and a hamstring and know what aerobic stands for. But like, I think you would be shocked. And maybe the U in this case is the NCA and like how much more, how much better thinkers you will get when you start incorporating folks that come from outside just exercise science. That's not a bash on exercise science, maybe necessarily, but I don't know. One of the, I have always appreciated having a business degree when it comes to working in this field, because it allows you to navigate the people side of things as opposed to just talking about sets, reps, and energy systems. And some of my favorite coaches are like the way that they are because they came to it through a non-traditional path mm-hmm. and, and bring like a different set of experiences and a different perspective and things like that. I don't know. It's a whole conversation. I don't know if anybody at NSCA listens to this or not. If you guys do and you want to throw down, give us a call. So anyway, you'll need your CSCS <laughs> to get a job as a strength coach. And when 2030 rolls around, not only will you need your real ID at the airport, but you will also need <laughs> a bachelor's degree in exercise science and or a related field. Uh, one one quick aside, the the TSAC, the Tactical Strength and Conditioning uh, Facilitator Certification, yes, it's good. No, it's not required, at least not from a lot of the postings that I've seen. Now, having said that, what I would recommend, and this is just me, take your CSCS sit on that for a couple of months and then go and take your TSAC one to see if you've still retained the information, but two, because I think though it is not required for some of these positions, it certainly can set you apart from somebody that doesn't have it. Not always, but sometimes. And I think that the the TSAC is well known enough now to where you may see if you don't already some postings that do have it as a requirement, but I don't think I've seen it as a requirement of you. I'll, so I'll offer some notes here. First off, no, I have not seen it as a requirement. Um, second, I, like I said, I would chime in for like specific things to transitioning service members or service members who are thinking about it down the road. One, the NSCA does have a grant to help veterans pay for their CSCS. So if that's something you're interested in doing, there's some money available there. Um, the Army also has credentialing assistance which no longer has a service obligation associated with it, at least for officers. I don't know what it looks like on the enlisted side. I don't think, I mean, you guys don't work on the ADSO system anyway, so I think you're clear. So the there's funding available for you to do like TSEC or CSCS, including like getting the textbook and some study materials and things like that. So there's there's resources available to help you get these things. But coming back to Drew's comment about the TSEC, I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding about it. And some of that misunderstanding is among army leaders who are like trying to do the right thing. Cause there's a big push recently to get soldiers or service members across the services to get them certifications based on the job they are doing in uniform that can help them get hired once they leave uniform. And that's like a, a good effort to get behind. And we should encourage that. And it helps set people up for success, right? Like if you're a welder in the military, 
to date, that doesn't actually get you certified to weld as a civilian. You have to go through a whole separate program to get that certification when you're transitioning or afterwards. And that's frustrating. For whatever reason, on the strength and conditioning side, they seem to have settled on the TSAC as a great thing to try and get soldiers. There's all these initiatives to get soldiers their TSAC, whether it's like through their unit or whether it's at NCOAS courses they go to and all these things. And the thing I want to emphasize is that the TSAC was never even originally designed as a certification that would get people a job, like a full-time civilian job. What the TSEC was designed to be is a little extra knowledge for people who are full-time tactical professionals, but have additional responsibilities to oversee performance stuff for their peers or for their subordinate organization or whatever it is. So it is very much an add-on. It is not a standalone. Yeah, you're not nobody gets jobs based on the TSEC alone. Well, and I'll I'll add to that because they've now, they being the NSA, they have a lot of different certifications that they have launched recently. And and some of them are are very good. Like some of the data science, like it's all good stuff, but none of that is a standalone credential the way that the CSCS is. You know, for better, worse, or otherwise, that is right now the gold standard for the industry. You have to have it. You can add on with the other ones, but I think to your point, like go to the CSCS first. Spoiler alert, and I may get some hate from the NSCA for this. The TSAC is the CSCS. They've just changed athlete to soldier and or firefighter. Like it's the same thing. Um, There's at least three questions on load carriage that are tactical specific. Well, that, I mean, we've talked to <laughs> Rob or the Lord of load carriage. We know that that's what makes people tactical. Um, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but like in all seriousness, like don't stress over like read the books because the tests come from the books. But there's a lot of similarities. There are a lot more similarities than there are differences. Um, just from my own, and, and this is kind of, if this were a textbook, this next piece would be sort of the box on the side of the page, like Drew's perspective in terms of certifications for strength and conditioning coaches. We talked about the CSCS being one, CPR, AED obviously being required. For myself, the first certification I ever got was for personal training. I worked at a YMCA and that's the one that they, they asked for. Um, that's one of those you could take on a weekend and just have it kind of on your resume, which can be helpful. I think, and we touched on this before we recorded like personal training as an industry is, is a useful one to dip your toe in. Uh, if you do want to start working with human beings and, and make them fitter over the years, I've also had USA weightlifting. That's another good one. CrossFit, uh, which we can, we can talk about or not. I think, I think on aggregate, the CrossFit certification is phenomenal. Um, I think the sport of competitive fitness, you could probably debate till the cows come home. But the one thing I will say about this is if you are looking to get into tactical strength conditioning, um, the more human beings you can work with the better. And I don't think there's a certification out there that will put you in front of more human beings that move in more ways than a CrossFit level one cert. So I say that because I kind of grew up in that space. I have, I don't coach CrossFit as much anymore, but I've done it my entire life basically. And it is a gateway drug to a lot of different modalities that a lot of the population that you work with as a tactical coach will be appreciative of. For example, kettlebells, Olympic weightlifting, running, gymnastics, just like functional slash random fitness. A lot of the athletes, especially in the special operations world, a lot of the folks you work with will have come from CrossFit in one variation or another. So it behooves you as a coach to at least understand the theory. And if you can get your feet wet with some of the coaching, because you can be 
like you could have the NSCA stuff memorized and you could write the most beautiful like textbook program of all time. But if the person you're working with likes doing thrusters and sprints on an assault bike, and you don't really know how to put those two things together without like killing them, you're going to have a bad time. I'm going to say something. You can tell me whether it sounds crazy from your experience in my limited exposure. I will say that not just like they came from CrossFit stuff, but there's a significant chunk of the special operations community where they have a human performance staff. And rather than using that human performance staff, they just go do CrossFit stuff because they like it. Yeah. And I think there's, there's something there in terms of a conversation about like value added stuff and how we approach these people as humans. And like, just because something is like optimal doesn't mean it's going to fit into the environment and the culture and things like that. And if you can't beat them, join them. And there's, there's every program has pros and cons, right? And there are tons of good things about CrossFit, just like there are bad things. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll, I consider there, there's basically two CrossFits, right? There's like capital C CrossFit where you're doing your level one, Maybe you're working at a gym or a, a box. Do they still call them boxes? I haven't heard that I think term. So. You're working at a box. You know, you're you're tuning in once a year to the games. Like that's capital C CrossFit, and that's cool. But then there's also to me kind of lower lowercase C CrossFit, and maybe they'll sue me for saying this. AKA but like, mixed mode training. Mixed mode, yeah, X Fit, depending on what, what kind of gym you go to. Like, and that's basically just this idea of combining all different modalities. And to me, that is where the 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 big return on investment is from a coaching standpoint, the more you understand that space, I think the more successful you'll be as a coach. So again, not to totally get derailed, but that is a certification that I would look at. That's also a certification that credentialing assistance funds are available for as well. There you go. Um, the other thing I'll add to this is look on the endurance side of things as, uh, as well. So like, I don't have it anymore, but for a long time, I had my USA triathlon certification. I know USA track and field has a certification that is a whole different ball game. I remember when I set for my USAT, it was in San Diego, which makes sense because it was triathlon. I was the only person in the room that had probably touched a barbell. And when we went around and like kind of talked about what got us into, into triathlon, like we didn't even touch on the strength. I think they skipped that part of the lecture because everybody was so focused on like gear ratios and technology and blow, but that's just that world. The reason that I think that that's important is because if you have your CSCS, you've got maybe a USA weightlifting or a CrossFit level one, and then you can show on your resume that you've done the due diligence on the endurance side of the house. Like that's a pretty powerful application. I think the other thing that is important to mention on the USA track and field, USA triathlon, the requirements to retain those certifications are insane. Like you have to attend a certain number of events, a certain number of conferences. You have to read a certain number of paper. Like the reason I don't have my USA triathlon certification anymore is because I could not retain it with everything else that I had going on. So credit to those guys, because to be able to sustain that means that you know your stuff. Whereas for some of the other certifications, and again, I won't name names, like you just have to click a box once a year and like, you're good to go. So, you know, keep that in mind as you're looking at these, just some of the requirements they have to sustain them, because in a lot of cases, it's not just one and done. In terms of like resources, I think as we talk, I'm thinking about things I need to like put together and make available for the audience and things like that. Um, I do have a post on the like, Instagram and Facebook page that goes over how to use credentialing assistance to get your TSAC. It's an essentially identical process for CSCS. Even the point of contact is the same because it's still the NSCA. 
um, for, for other ones, the point of contact will change and like the, but the, the process is the same. Um, so I, I might do like a quick refresh on that one and make sure it's like applicable to any different certifications and make sure people have access to that. It's, it's probably outside the scope of this conversation, but I am often asked for advice on studying for the CSCS. Um, I can, I can slap something together that has some of like my preferred resources for that one, especially as somebody who did not come from that background and had to learn some of the, some of the foundational stuff on my own. There's a few good resources out there that speed that process up for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, from, yeah, I think that'll be helpful. My best advice on the CSCS and the test is like, know the book, because as much as you might think something about strength and conditioning, and you might be right, the test is based off of the book. And that's the case for, I think a lot of these things. So there's one section of the book where I disagree with that, like strongly. And well, there's that, a lot of the book that I don't agree with. No, it's not that I disagree <laughs> with the content of the book. It's that there's one section of the book where I don't think the way to be prepared for the test is to learn it from the book. And mm. that is the entire, all of the chapters that have to do with exercise technique. I cannot imagine other than sprint mechanics, which you kind of have to learn the like the in the weeds stuff, like all the barbell stuff and like basically every exercise technique thing in there is going to be way, way easier to learn by just being in a gym and training and getting coached and things like that. Yeah. I, I can't imagine trying to like learn all that stuff in theory, never having applied it. And if you, if you want to be a coach, I can't imagine wanting to learn that stuff from a book. That just sounds sad. Again, like I won't harp on it much more, but like, that's why I go back to kudos to the CrossFit space. Because again, like you can take that, the level one is a weekend long. It's not cheap, but it's a weekend. And then if you've got a good relationship with a local box, you can be in front of a class of 20 people aged 16 to 60 trying to teach like lifting mechanics. Like you can't tell me that that's not a good place to cut your teeth as a coach. Uh, you will learn things or you will, you know, be embarrassed. So yeah, that's certifications degrees we touched on. Do you want to shift gears and apply for a job? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think and make sure we've covered all the, the basics in terms of transitional stuff. Um, another one I would throw out that I didn't mention in terms of like resources as you're transitioning, if you know, this is something you want to get into and you're on an installation where there's any sort of human performance presence, just like be friends with those people, like track them down, tell them you want to get into this stuff and they will like hand walk you through the process and you might find yourself stumbling your way into an internship or something. Oh yeah. We totally, I mean, you know, shout out to my day job. We do that all the time. Um, there's, okay. and there's more and more of that happening all over the place. So we'll kind of walk through a make-believe process here. We've touched on some of the overarching differences between contract and GS. We've touched on some of the resources like websites folks can head to degrees, certifications. I've got a position pulled up right in front of me and I'm going to read off, not necessarily word for word, but the basic qualifications. So we'll kind of, I think, the way we talked about doing this before we press record, there's a couple of different caveats to some of these, you know, whether it's a special operations position or a conventional position, army versus Navy versus air force versus Marine Corps. Some of the, some of the language will change, but I think by and large there, again, there's more similarities than there are differences. So this is, this is a standard uh, contracted strength and conditioning position 
qualifications or a bachelor's degree, again, from an accredited college or university, the accredited piece I think is important because you oftentimes don't think about it until you realize your university is not accredited. So just, you know, due diligence, check and see. Hey, this is me speaking directly to like soldiers everywhere. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily matter that you go to like the best school in the world, that you go to like an Ivy League university or something, but please just don't go to a for-profit university. Um, like do do a quick Google of the place you're planning to go and see if they've been sued recently for <laughs> like lying to their prospective students about the employment rate of their graduates or something, right? There's I've seen over the last few years, several universities lose their eligibility for GI Bill money, lose their eligibility for tuition assistance money. And that leaves you in a pretty shitty situation because the same reasons that they are no longer accepting your nice army benefit money for your tuition might also lead other universities to not accept their transfer credits. So just like, you don't have to have the highest standards in the world, but you should have some standards. I know for me, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I went through a little bit of this when I was applying for positions because my master's degree is from overseas in Scotland. And so it's an accredited university, but it doesn't necessarily translate one-to-one in terms of GPA. I mean, they don't even use GPA over there. So I, I have my own personal experience with dealing with universities that may not fit the bill. There sometimes can be ways around it, but just to touch on that point again that you mentioned, like check and see and make sure you go to a real school. So we talked about the bachelor's degree. We talked about the CSCS, I think enough, um, you will need it. And then for most of these positions, the phrase that you're starting to see now is have three years of relevant SCC, which is strength conditioning work experience within the last five years. So for some positions and specifically special operations, you may see that a five-year minimum is required. Um, for some of the newer ones on the conventional side, you'll see three years. What's interesting to me as I'm looking at this is that they have language in here now about internship experience and what that means, because I know that there have been a lot of folks who have tried, and, and some of these folks I know really personally, where they have had internship experience and the question for the company, the contract company is whether or not that that counts. So let me pull up, where was the one? I'm glad you went straight into it because that's exactly what I was going to ask you to touch on. So here, here, I'll read this sentence directly from the posting. Employment related to internships or graduate work for only up to one year is considered as relevant experience. So what that means is if you've been an intern for five years, you can use one of those years as relevant experience. And it doesn't matter if you interned for the freaking Patriots or, you know, SEAL team, whatever. It's an internship. It doesn't count as full-time employment. I have seen that bite some people. So just be aware that, you know, when they ask for three years, they're going to look for three years. Some other things, just again, this is kind of like the small print must be a U.S. citizen. That has actually come up quite a bit. And maybe this is just me because some of the work that I do talking with universities is on the European side because of my my graduate degree. But if you don't have a U.S. citizenship, you're going to have a very hard time, almost an impossible time working for the U.S. military. That also goes the other way. So if you want to work for the British military or whatever, or the French Foreign Legion, if you don't have a citizenship for that country... I mean, I would go so far as to say, like, don't even look at jobs because you're going to have a hard time working for the military in a country that you aren't a citizen of. That should make sense yeah. to folks. Pretty straightforward. Similarly, this should go without saying, you must have the ability to read, write, and speak English effectively. That makes sense. Um, this one is probably worth talking about a little bit. Background checks and clearances, security clearances. <laughs> 
So <laughs> if you're on the secret or sorry, if you're on the special operations side, secret is, is the minimum. I would think um, there's some positions that have way, way higher than that. And you'll know it when you apply, usually you don't stumble into those. Uh, and, and there's some that are lower than that, but regardless, if you have any sort of run-in with any sort of law in your life, if you've done anything illegal, like, I don't know, what would you, what would you say to people? So we're going to tap into some unique experience I have in my past year as someone who was involved in like the clearance process back in the day. None of the things Drew just mentioned are immediately disqualifying. You can't have a criminal record and still get a clearance. You can't have seen people and still get, get a clearance. Yeah. I've there's, seen people there's get all sorts of things. That stuff. Mm -hmm. the, what the system is designed to do foundationally is to determine how easy you are to manipulate, basically. Like are all of those things are to detect whether there is a likelihood that you like of your own accord will like run away with our secrets or if you are vulnerable to manipulation by a foreign intelligence threat or whatever to try and get information out of you that can make you vulnerable, but it doesn't immediately make you vulnerable. Really, really high amounts of debt might be immediately disqualifying, but like moderate amounts of debt that you are on time on your payments for is probably not disqualifying. Lots of people have that. Uh, like a truly heinous criminal record is probably disqualifying, but like minor stuff is probably not going to get you cut out of the process for a clearance. Don't self-disqualify. You can always apply, right? There's not really a, a consequence to it. Um, just know that that's like when they, if you get to this point where you're getting interviewed for it or something like that, that is the purpose of all of their questions is to find out like whether you are a vulnerability because of these things that are in your past. And don't lie because they will. I do not. They will find out. If you're not sure if it's on your record, but it might be, tell them. Be like being like a good way to show that you're probably not like an easy person to manipulate and mess with is to not try hiding things from an investigative agency of the United States government. Yeah. Uh, like being very open about stuff and addressing it. Like for example, I'll, I'll provide one that I think is kind of funny. An NCO who used to work for me several years ago now, fantastic guy. Um, every time he came up for a clearance reinvestigation, he would get the same question. And it was always like, Hey, we see this like $300 delinquent payment from whatever year that you never paid. He's like, yeah, is that a problem? They're like, well, what's, what's the deal with it? Are you going to pay it? He's like, no, fuck that guy. And they're like, all right, fine, cool. And he kept getting his clearance every year. Uh, I think it was over like a lawnmower or something and he was pissed about it. And yeah, but they determined that it was not something he was getting manipulated over. So it was fine. Well, there you go. So yeah, just as you're looking at these postings, just check the security clearance, check and see what that requires. I mean, if you're, if you're stumbling into some of the positions that require, you know, lie detector tests and that kind of thing, you probably know what you're doing ahead of time. Um, and find out whether it's a tested position too. If you're uh, yep. someone who enjoys like non-traditional medicines. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, that's kind of your basic requirements. Um, this is probably the right time to talk about whether contracts have been awarded or not. It's a good, very important note. So you will, you will find, I'll walk you through a scenario. You go on indeed.com, which is what I've done here. And you type in tactical strength and conditioning coach and a bajillion positions pop up and you think, oh my goodness, everyone's hiring. Sometimes that is true. And I will say with what the army is doing with H2F, there are a lot of strength and conditioning positions that are open. That being said, if you look at some of these postings and I'll find the one that I pulled up uh, specifically for this 
point, they will say at the bottom on occasion, this position is contingent upon contract award. So what that means is that the government, because in advance of awarding contracts, the government will throw out what it's looking for to the marketplace. They'll say, hey, we're thinking of doing you know, human performance and we're thinking of hiring 100 coaches. That gives companies the opportunity to start collecting resumes and basically put their bids together to say, hey, we can provide this service, which is why you will often see a lot of companies hiring that may not actually be hiring. So effectively what they are doing is they are turning, they're opening up these positions and saying, Hey, we have to collect resumes. We have to, you know, have qualified, talented people, whatever, so that they can then bid for the contract. That doesn't mean that these positions don't exist. So you, you might apply for a company, you might get, you know, selected uh, and, and they may use different terminology to basically explain to you what I just explained to you. And then that company might win the contract and then lo and behold, you get hired and you're now a tactical strength coach. However, bear in mind that only one company wins an award. So, you know, there might be 10, 15, 20 other companies that that don't win. And in that case, you don't have a job. So that's not to say that that's something you need to like be afraid of or avoid, but just be aware that that's the way that this game works. Just because a company is posting positions does not mean that they have won the contract or actually have a position to fill. You know, I won't, well, maybe I will. Exos does this a lot where they will just have a standing position available on their website for a tactical strength and conditioning specialist. You can apply to it at any time. It doesn't mean that there's actually a position available. It just means that they're maintaining the flow of resumes and folks that they can hire so that when they do bid on these positions, they can tell the government, hey, we have enough people. We can fulfill this, this contract. So that's that's something to be aware of. One other point that I will make kind of on that same note is that there are there are prime contracts and then there are subcontracts. And what that effectively means is that one company will win the contract for the big award, and then they will subcontract that out to smaller companies. And that's where you'll start to see a lot of these random companies pop up that are, you know, veteran-owned, small business, female-owned, you know, whatever, all these different verbiages that they use to become more attractive to the government because they want to award different companies, blah, 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 blah. Despite the fact that I'm located in Virginia, I see an astonishing amount of native Alaskan companies operating (laughs) on my installation. It's all a game. Just be aware of the fact that it's all a game. So I say all that. Most of the positions you'll find will be on indeed.com. They'll be on the NSCA's job board. You you might find the occasional position, like I mentioned, on some of the bigger players' uh, websites, you know, like Exos, um, you know, Potomac, KBR. So when you're searching for positions, you know, start start with those big ones and then kind of work your way down to some of the companies that you may never have heard of. Because what might happen is that one of those big companies wins it, and then they subcontract it out, and you know, regardless of the of the flag you fly under, you, you still have a position as a tactical strength coach with the military. Did we leave anything off? I think that was pretty good. I don't have anything to add on that part. And I again, I bring that up because I have talked to folks who have reached out and said, you know, hey, I applied to this position and I haven't heard back and it's been weeks and weeks and weeks. And the reality of it is that I would almost guarantee that if you go back and look at that posting, you'll see something like that phrase, this position is contingent upon contract reward. Those folks are bidding for an upcoming contract. Actually, speaking of not hearing back for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, returning to federal civilian job listings. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, the experience, the experience can vary very widely. Um, yeah. but 
I I saw a post the other day. There's a a really fantastic overheard account for the DC area specifically that deals a lot with like government stuff because of how many government employees there are there. And there was one from a guy who got a job offer for something he had applied to five years before. That is unusual, but not surprising. It's it's extreme. <laughs> it's like by far the furthest I've heard, but like I've seen stuff where it's like six months a year. That's oh, not, I've seen. That's I've, not even I, rare. Yeah, I've. Yeah, that's a whole different. I guess to put a bow on that one, if you are applying for a federal position, and this is the GS stuff we talked about earlier, like just be prepared for it to take a while. Don't apply. See that you were referred to the hiring manager, and then tell your current boss that you're done because you're not for a little bit. <laughs> Hopefully, not five years, but certainly a couple of months. Um, one thing I'll, I'll add to this, and, and maybe this opens up a slightly different conversation, but as a contractor, as a as a prospective contractor, you do have the ability to negotiate probably more than you think that you do. Certainly when I started, I didn't even think that I could negotiate. And I wish I knew that in hindsight. The way that it works is that the government sets aside a certain amount of money. They award the contract. And then as is the way with capitalism, the company that wins that contract tries to pay out the least amount of that money to its employees because effectively it pockets the rest. Obviously it doesn't, I mean, there's, you know, costs associated with running a business, but the point is there's often money on the table with which you can negotiate. So you'll see a lot of these posts, the salary range occasionally, and, and oftentimes more often than not, that range will hold true. But in some instances, if you do have a considerable amount of experience or a unique qualifier that you think you can bring to the table, you can negotiate. Um, that's not to say that they will grant every single one of your wishes, but I guess the take-home point there is what you see on the posting is certainly up for for negotiation or interpretation. I don't know if you want to add anything to that or not. Nothing really specific to add. Um, there's There's lots of like timing pieces that play into that and the fact that contractors get, the amount of money they get is contingent on the number of positions they have filled and things like that but nothing that's for the podcast necessarily. So some things to that, to add to that number one, cause I've seen this happen. If the posting lists, you know, 50 to 55 K you're not going to make 150 K. Like, I don't care how experienced you are, like just accept that. Um, so don't come in, you know, swinging for the fences. The other thing as well. And again, this is something that I've seen happen is, you know, you might, you might work for a company that is paying quite well because of the way that they function of, you know, it might be a, a bespoke company that just has a little bit more in terms of resources. If that contract expires and another company comes in, if you're getting a uniquely large sum of money relative to your coworkers, you may find that if another company takes that contract, they are unwilling or unable to support that salary. So just keep that in mind. Um, if you're looking at contracting work longitudinally, there could be some fluctuations over time. And there's other things you can negotiate with, you know, benefits, time off, CEUs is a big one. Um, so all of those are fair play when it comes to actually getting on the phone with these companies and saying, Hey, I want to do this work, but uh, I'd like to talk about maybe changing X, Y, and Z. Since we're on the topic of negotiation on the federal employee side of things, I would say you have a lot less negotiating. I don't know if your experience has been different. There. There is room for negotiation It is a thing, frankly, in anything that you're doing. So like the, the game is different. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
Um, but for like the most likely thing you're going to end up negotiating about is either like money for relocation. If you're moving to the place that the job is or a step increase within the grade that the job is listed at. Um, those are the the most likely things you're going to end up negotiating about because of the way the federal government works. You, you may find yourself negotiating in the form of like memos and like legalese written stuff on like more traditional negotiations, but like being able to justify it with like quantitative evidence. Right. So like the, the, the most common justification for like a step increase is based on like your previous compensation, wherever you're coming from. So being able to quantify that. And if you're the most previous place you're coming from is the military note that your base pay is not the best thing to tell them in terms of like how much money you were making, it is very easy to go find your total compensation and you should use that because that is what you were making. Um, base pay in the military is not reflective of total compensation at all because it excludes things like BAH and BAS and all sorts of stuff. And you can even potentially include the value of your benefits and various allowances and all that stuff. So, so keep all that in mind if you're a military person transitioning into a role like that, that it's a little bit different process. Yeah. And I've, I've held two different GS positions. One was very negotiable because it was a one-off and being able to show like, you know, civilian equivalencies. What is, what is somebody who would hold a position similar to this in the civilian world make? Like that's one way to do it. Flip side though, you know, with especially, you know, the H2F world, like this is a massive movement and there is virtually no room for negotiation because of the demand for the position. So if the position that you're applying for on the GS side is more of a bespoke one-off uh, specific to the need of a unit squadron, whatever you, you may have more room to negotiate. If it's a much bigger kind of industrial push, you'll have a lot less room, if any at all. Uh, and like you mentioned, a lot of that comes in the form of step increases within grade. One thing to just avoid altogether, like if, if you apply for a position and it's listed as like a GS seven, you're not going to talk your way into a GS 15. Like that's just not, it's, it's not a one-to-one with, you know, how it might work if you're going to work at an accounting firm or, you know, bank or whatever. That, that does bring up an important point by the way, which is that the federal system is pretty strict on advancements between grades. Mm -hmm. Technically speaking to be eligible for the next grade, you have to have a year in the prior grade or a year of experience commensurate with the prior grade. Mm -hmm. um, if it was outside the federal government, um, there are, some funky exceptions to that, but they're fairly rare. Um, one worth noting, if we're going to talk about like how you get your foot in the door to the federal system, there are some cool things called like career stepladder positions where you come in as like a seven and then very rapidly like have guaranteed promotions to not just a grade higher, but sometimes two grades higher at a time. And it can be like, sometimes these are referred to as internships, but they're really just like accelerated mm -hmm. progressions into the system where you get your basic experience of working, keeping an eye out for things like that can be helpful. Otherwise you can end up in some annoying situations where you're not eligible for the next position that would make sense for you. So you kind of have to leave the federal system, acquire experience that would be useful or like that you need to be eligible for the position and then try and come back in. It's a little bit easier to come back in than it is to come from nothing, mm -hmm. but that's a whole pain. Like, it would be much easier to progress within the system. But in this human performance world in particular, there's not like a ton of positions at various grades, which can get you stuck in certain places if you don't plan ahead. 
Yeah, and that's you know again specific to the human performance space. Ninety nine percent of the positions are contracted, and that's fine. I mean, there's. I remember being twenty three, twenty four years old, and thinking like I'm going to get fired tomorrow. Like literally every day when I drive into work. But I would, I would just. There's a lot more security in those positions than I think you would you might think. There are we're starting to see more GS positions in the human performance space, um, but most of those require more advanced degrees, more years of experience, you know, what have you, whether it's a master's or a master's plus whatever else. So for most folks, the foot in the door is going to be the contracted strength and conditioning specialist, which we've talked about kind of where to find some of those, what the requirements are, some of the salary negotiations you can, you can deal with. We made a couple of notes here that I'll just touch on real quick. And if you want to elaborate on them, go for it embedded positions versus what I'll call kind of like globo gym positions, just to have folks be aware of what's out there in the industry. So when most, when most people think of tactical strength and conditioning, they think of a strength and conditioning coach working specifically with a unit, traditionally special operations now more so conventional, but working directly with that group of soldiers, sailors, airmen, whatever, to train for the mission. Um, that is most of this space. However, virtually every installation, military installation, ONUS, OCONUS has gyms and those gyms are staffed by people, um, you know, active duty, sure, but also contractors, GS. So those exist as well. And you'll see them called different things depending on the branch, depending on the location. Um, MWR is the army one. I forget what the air force one is. Those those positions exist. The, the most similar example I can think of for the civilian space would be like personal training. Um, so if that's kind of what you're into, or if that's something that you're you're curious about, or if you're looking at some of these positions online and, and it sounds like that's more like what it is, then that's probably what you're looking at. So again, you you kind of have broadly speaking two avenues. There's the embedded avenue, which is far and away probably the more common, and then the globo gym. Avenue. Anything on that? Some some fast ones. Um, one, I haven't like independently confirmed this, but supposedly every installation across the army, MWR has at least one CSCS qualified person. I think in a lot of cases those person those people are like the MWR managers and things like that. So they're not necessarily in a direct coaching role, but that appears to be the case across the army. Um, and then one quick shout out previous podcast guest Riley Kelleher is kind of an example of like blending the two a little bit. He is, he works in an MWR facility, but operates much more like he is an embedded guy where he's like mission focused and engaging with the units and teaching classes for them and squads are coming in and stuff like that. So there's, there's ways to like carve out pretty cool stuff regardless of where you end up. Yeah. And I won't, I mean, I don't think we need to go any deeper than that in terms of different requirements. I'm like the takeaway there would be just make sure you check the job posting because not that I've experienced this, but I can see I can see it happening where somebody thinks they're going the embedded route and they end up in a mm-hmm. you know big facility or vice versa. And a lot of those MWR roles are NAF positions, non-appropriated fund positions, and that world is a little bit different. Um, so uh, I'm not going to dive into it here because I personally have no experience with it. But it's it's something I would do my research on if I were applying to a position like that. And, and then the last piece that I've got in front of me is. We touched on this a little bit, but just the special operations versus the conventional space. I think 
there have always been openings in both of those worlds. There have always been people working in both of those worlds from the human performance standpoint. I think largely the more common tactical strength and conditioning role for the last decade or so has been in the special operations space. But now with more of the conventional stuff opening up, we're seeing a shift, you know, and you see this at a lot of the big national conferences where historically the conversation has been around, you know, Ranger SEALs, Green Berets, Pararescue. Now it's shifting more towards the conventional side. Reason I bring all that up is because again, back to the job requirements, typically there's going to be more money in the special operations world. However, you know, for obvious reasons, the requirements are going to be a little bit higher, both from an experience standpoint and then also a background security check standpoint. So just have that in the back of your head. I have heard scenarios where some of the contract companies that facilitate these special operations positions do not count conventional strength and conditioning experience as experience. I don't think that that's appropriate. I mean, I would argue that because folks that I've worked with, I mean, on either side of the fence have been awesome. I've, I mean, I've seen people move from soft positions to conventional positions and from conventional mm-hmm. positions to soft positions. So I have a exactly. feeling that much like many things, it probably comes down to how you articulate it. Yep. Um, and this is, this is again, like a little outside the scope of this podcast, but like you're the one who writes your resume and you are the one who talks about your experience. Um, don't, I've, I've seen this. I saw this happen specifically with an NCO who was in my platoon when I was a platoon leader. Um, she was applying to jobs and not having a lot of success. And I asked to see her resume so I could help with it. And she showed it to me and it was extremely honest in a way that was not good. Like don't, (laughs) don't write your resume as though you're explaining to your buddy over beers, what it is you do at work. Cause that's not going to get you jobs. Uh, you're, you're gonna have to be a little bit flowery and make yourself sound important and things like that. And realize that everybody else is playing that exact same game. And that's how it works. People from the military, people from the military. Yeah. Do not lie. Do not pretend you did a job that you did not do and things like that. But if you have military experience, then you have experience with like OERs and NCOERs use that kind of language or like award bullet kind of language when you do these kind of things. I like when I hear anecdotes, like they didn't count any of that experience. I mean, I've, I've seen people get military experience from a job that was not explicitly human performance to count because they articulated how much they were involved, which they were in the human performance of like a dozen or 20 or 30 people. Uh, so it all really comes down to how you articulate it. Yeah. And I guess the, the last piece I'll touch on with this, the soft versus conventional, like my opinion on this is that you are better off being inside the industry than outside of it. So don't, if a conventional position is is open and available and you're qualified, but you're dead set on working with special operations, don't necessarily pass up the conventional opportunity. Because I think, as we mentioned earlier on, like it is a very, very small world and people know people who know people who know people. And if you are in the space and can kind of carve out a niche, a niche make a name for yourself, network, you stand a much higher chance of getting ultimately to where it is you want to go by virtue of already being somebody who is involved as opposed to waiting around for the right position or, you know, what you think is the right position to open up. So again, that's just my perspective. Some people might disagree. And I guess to put a bow, cause I know we've, we've gone kind of long, but to put a bow on all of this, how to become a tactical strength and conditioning coach in summary, 
like get your bachelor's degree, take the CSCS, have that in your back pocket, explore some other certifications that you think will make you competitive. We talked about the TSAC, but also look to some of the unconventional stuff like CrossFit, uh, you know, USA weightlifting, the endurance side of the house, collect those certifications, intern or volunteer wherever you can, as you're doing that type of thing. Um, I've, I've yet to come across anybody in the tactical strength and conditioning world that is not more than willing to open up their doors to anybody who wants to work and help out. And then keep an eye on websites like indeed.com, NSEA's job board, um, companies like Exos, companies like KBR, usajobs.gov. Make note of some of the small print with some of these. Again, we talked about, you know, on the on the federal side, certain positions being open to certain people on the contracting side, whether or not the company actually has the contract. And then what the requirements are in terms of years of experience, background checks, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think my my big takeaway would be apply for as much as you can, get as much experience applying as you can, interviewing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Don't be afraid, especially when you're kind of just kicking things off in your career to to move to a different location because you might find that there's more positions available. Um, but at the same time, understand that you do have a lot of negotiation. Well, not necessarily, maybe not a lot, but you will typically have some power to negotiate. Um, you know, whether again, it's salary or things beyond salary. So have we left any stones unturned? Not necessarily stones unturned. Um, I have a feeling this is an episode that we're going to get some questions from. So feel free to shoot those our way. We may or may not be able to answer them immediately, but it might lead into like future episodes or future products we can hang on the drive for people to download and things like that. And we, we talked about the uniform roles. We talked about the civilian roles. We talked about contracting specifically strength and conditioning. We did not get into athletic training and cognitive performance specialists, probably because neither of us are either athletic trainers or cognitive performance specialists, but those are also equally valid roles that are out there. We just don't want to speak from a lack of experience on what those spaces look like. Yeah. I mean, I guess just one point on that real quickly, like if you're talking to athletic trainers, physical therapy, like there are different roles in this space, but I think if you are somebody who's looking for those, you understand the requirements from both a schooling standpoint and accreditation standpoint et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think, and again, we've talked about this before, like one of the simultaneously best and worst things about strength and conditioning is that the barrier to entry is so low. Um, you know, you take that CSCS, you have that next to your name, like effectively you're as competitive as anybody else. Um, and there's, I think pros and cons to that, that are beyond the scope of, of this episode, but yeah. Yeah. Like you mentioned, feel free to reach out. I think both of us would be more than happy to help people. We've talked about down the road, having some resources available, you know, available jobs, different resources you mentioned for putting resumes together. Yeah. I do try to like, when I see ones that are particularly interesting or like news about hiring stuff and things like that, I do try and share it on the Instagram page so people can see it. I don't share every single job I see because jobs are posted all the time, but if there's something particularly interesting or things like that, I try and spread the word when I can. Yeah. And the, and the last thing I'll mention too, is because we laid out a lot of things that sound like requirements and I think a lot of them are, but for every requirement that I've seen on a job posting, I've run into somebody who has been outside of that requirement and still managed to get the position. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just to say, if this is something you really want to do, don't necessarily take the first no as, as the definitive answer, you, you know, reach out to people You're more than welcome to reach out to us, keep pushing because this is a this is a space in the strength and conditioning industry that is only getting bigger and i would love to see good people filling the seats 
Hell yeah. Bye. Hey guys, Drew here. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you found it useful or enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you giving us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can also give us a follow on the Mops and Mo's Instagram. And if you'd like to reach out, send us a message on Instagram or shoot us an email at mopsinmos at gmail.com. Thanks.